One, I'm incredibly grateful to have Steve back to play his guitar as a part of our worship. It's um, a tremendous blessing. So, so, so very thankful to have Steve back with us. I don't know if you heard this in the scripture reading that Steve read earlier at the service, but in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is the personification of God himself, his word, his truth, and the life that comes from him. And tucked all the way at the very end of this passage that Steve read, it says, The one who sins against me, wisdom, injures himself. All those who hate me love death. And I thought that that was just a, um, a profound insight that would be beneficial for us to focus on as we go before the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Father, how grateful we are that you have enabled us to know the truth about who you are. You're not just some divine, powerful being that put all that we know into place, but you are a sovereign God who loves and who desires what is best for his children. And you give to us words of life that lead us and guide us in the path and in the direction that we should go. God, I pray that you would change our perspective on sin, most especially those tolerable sins, those sins that are seemingly insignificant or are private, or are unknown and don't appear to hurt anybody. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate the truth of your word, that when we despise wisdom, your word, then we injure ourselves. God, I pray that you would help us to understand and to pursue the life that is provided for us through the truth of your word. Not only eternal life, but of an abundant life, a quality of life spiritually that enables us to know your peace, to be able to experience the fullness of your presence, to enjoy the indescribable depth of your love, and to have an unwavering hope of one day standing before you and being brought low before the holy God that created and saved and loved us, your children. Father, I pray that in some small way you'll use our gathering together today to help us to desire to know you more fully, to walk with you more faithfully, to be the people who bring joy to your heart as we unwaveringly pursue the life that you make available to us through your word. So, Father, we pray that you would speak through your inspired word to us today, that your spirit who indwells us would convict us, he would encourage and comfort us, and that he would draw us to the lap of love that is in you, our Father. I pray, Father, that you would bless 
your word in such a way that what I may or may not say has no impact on your ability, desire, or obvious work in our life. So, Father, we consecrate ourselves before the authority of your word and pray that you would be pleased with our response to it today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles with me again to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we turn a bit of a corner here as we look in chapter 5 and the chapters that follow. And specifically today, we're dealing with immorality. So chapter 4 ends with Paul's final description of what a servant is like. He talked about the servant being one who plants and one who waters, one who farms, one who builds. And in this final and most endearing description Paul gives, he gives a description of a father who admonishes. That word admonish means to encourage. It means to motivate. It is to stimulate the things that would be best in the life of those that the Father loves. As you think about raising your own children, as you think about the influence you have with your grandchildren, you will admonish them and encourage them and urge them to obey the Lord, to consider who He is and to follow Him as faithfully as as they would know how. The spiritual father models a life that is worthy of imitation. Not many fathers can say that. We often say, do as I say, not as I do. But Paul, as a spiritual father, was able to say, do as I do, because it's consistent with what I say. And the last part of this example of what a spiritual father does for his children is that he disciplines So it is this last function of a discipliner that will dominate chapter 5 and really much of the remaining chapters within this letter to the church in Corinth as Paul begins here to identify with and deal with the immorality that was running rampant within the church. Now what's hard for us to connect with is this. The Roman world, and especially the city of Corinth, was known for its sexual immorality. Corinth was home to Aphrodite. I'm sure you've heard of Aphrodite before. She was known as the goddess of love and lust. And there was a humongous temple that was built for her worship. And the temple of Aphrodite employed some 1,000 prostitutes who were considered to be priestesses of the goddess Aphrodite. And so since Corinth was a major seaport, many, many people traveled to and from the city of Corinth, and its immorality was a lure for many. As some in our culture might say, we're going to Vegas, baby. And what they mean by that is there is unadulterated sinfulness at our disposal, and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, unfortunately, that's just not true. But that is the lure, that is the enticement of Sin City. And Corinth is very similar in that regard, probably even to a greater degree, 
because of places like the Temple of Aphrodite. So after Paul has spent considerable time dealing with the problem of worldly philosophy and the influx of human wisdom within the church, their allegiance to human leaders, the application of this unbiblical acceptance of human philosophy is seen now in the actions of the church. Now, we could say, well, I can understand how having an unbiblical affection for a spiritual leader might not be terribly healthy, but it may not be very bad. Well, from this point forward, it's very clear that what Paul is dealing with is incredibly significant. The bottom line, as we springboard out of a very lengthy treatise on human wisdom and human philosophy is very simply this. What we believe will affect what we do. You can underline that, circle it, highlight it, do whatever you need to do to remember that truth. What we believe will affect what we do. In the inner city... If you believe that someone who disrespects you is worthy of a gunshot, that's what you're going to do. If you believe that the hunger you experience gives you the ability to go into someone's home or into someone's place of business and to steal their goods, that is what you will do. If you believe that adultery is archaic and that God's desire for you is to be happy and fulfilled and to have fun, then you will pursue the things that make what you believe a reality in your life. If you don't believe that's true, look around at the world that we live in. It is filled with countless examples of people who are very simply acting out upon their belief system, and Christians are not exempt from that exact same problem. So Paul, as their spiritual father, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is going to assert his authority and insist that they deal with the issues that exist within their church. Now, as we learn from chapter 4, they will either learn to deal with the issues correctly and biblically, or he will come to them with a figurative rod of discipline, and he will discover for himself the philosophical power that those who would teach such things actually stand behind. Now, it's very difficult for for us to understand exactly what Paul means by this, but let me just paint this picture for you. When you read Paul's writings, when you see how Paul engaged Jews in the synagogue and pagan leaders, as you listen to him explain truth... He is one guy that I would never, ever, ever want to debate. I am not an apologist. I have a fairly good grasp on God's Word. But I would never, ever, ever want to debate an unbiblical position before the Apostle Paul because I am confident that it would end in utter embarrassment. So if I were to stand before the Apostle Paul and to put my philosophical position before him, and we were to debate that, whose power of truth would prevail? Well, Paul's would, because Paul's philosophical position is firmly entrenched 
in the truth of God's Word. And this is the point that he wants to make and why he exerted his apostolic authority early in the letter is he is going to deal with the sin in the church. Let's read read together 1 Corinthians 5. We're only going to get through verse 5 today and then we'll continue this next week. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I would imagine that Paul is aghast at even having to write such a thing as I have just read. Paul has to deal with immorality within the church at Corinth to such a depth of debauchery that it is probably unfathomable to him that he is even having to do so. So in the first step in dealing with immorality, Paul wants to understand the need. He wants for the church in Corinth to understand the need to deal with this immorality that he is bringing to their attention. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So what Paul wants to underscore is understanding the need for discipline. Discipline is the springboard out of chapter 4 that plummets him into chapter 5 so that the church understands its need for discipline. The fact that this has been reported to Paul means that it was common knowledge. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't whispered quietly in the corners of the hall. It was on display. It was public knowledge, and everybody knew about it. You would expect that most immorality in the lives of people is somewhat private, and even more so within the church. But here, it's quite the opposite. It's on full display. Everyone knows about it. And the church is just sitting there observing this depth of morality that Paul cannot even imagine he's having to deal with. Now, that word immorality in the Greek is the word pornea, and it is the word from which we get pornography. Biblically, the word pornography relates to any kind of sexual immorality, and most specifically, sex outside of the marriage relationship. It would include sex before marriage. It would include extramarital sex. It would include homosexual sex. It would probably also include 
thought out or fantasized sex that wasn't physically acted out as Jesus makes the application of what we think inside of us is sinful even though we don't specifically act it out. So within the Greek culture, that word pornea was specifically applied to prostitution. Within the Roman world and within the city of Corinth, prostitution was not a big deal. It was accepted. It was allowed. It was practiced publicly and was on display. So sexual immorality came to be biblically understood, as I mentioned, as any kind of sex outside of the marriage relationship. And this kind of sexual immorality plagued the early church, not just in Corinth, but all throughout the Roman world, from which most of Paul's missionary journeys and letters were addressed to. And this is why immorality is often the first item listed in the New Testament lists of vice actions. So when you read in the New Testament, those vice activities, immorality is almost always the first or the second item that is listed. So in the Roman world, in the Corinthian world, there was a very relaxed attitude about sex. It was common for married men to have mistresses, perhaps even the temple priestesses, They would often have concubines, and yet they would still have a wife who would bear to them legitimate children. This was the world that Paul was addressing and dealing with. And so non-Jewish converts were very slow to break with their former ways and adopt a biblical understanding of sex within marriage alone. The Roman world did not possess a Judeo-Christian understanding of the sanctity of sex within a marriage relationship. But here, in Corinth, the immorality was incest because a man, quote, has his father's wife. Now, why is this relationship considered to be incestuous? Well, because the Bible says so. The Bible does not make a differentiation between incest, you having sex with your biological mother, or you having sex with your stepmother or your mother that has come by way of a second marriage. This is what we would read in Leviticus as well as in Deuteronomy 22 verse 30. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he will uncover his father's skirt. Now, the father doesn't wear a skirt. That is a a phrase or reference to the skirt of the mother. So those who were guilty of such immorality in Old Testament days were excommunicated from the community of believers and were sometimes even stoned because of that immorality. Now, based upon the phrase... His father's wife, we understand it to be his stepmother and not his biological mother. Now, even in the sexually free Roman world, Roman law forbade 
the relationship between a man and his stepmother, which is why Paul says that this is forbidden even among the Gentiles. So how shocking is it that something that is not allowed in a perverted culture like Corinth or Rome is taking place openly and publicly in the church of Jesus Christ? Could you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine... Well, actually, in our culture in America, we had laws against sodomy. Brother, if you're going to do that, you're going to do that in the privacy of your home, and nobody better find out about it because you will be charged and you will be tried. Well, in our most recent history, that was seen to be unconstitutional and archaic and set way back in some distant world that nobody can even relate to. And so now here we are some 50, 60 years later, and this kind of behavior is publicly paraded and celebrated. But imagine in such a day when it was forbidden in the laws of America to engage in such a relationship, and it was taking place down at First Baptist Church on the corner. What would you think about such a place? What would you think about such people? Well, this Corinthian culture did not allow this kind of relationship to take place, but nonetheless, it is taking place openly within the church. Now, in this first verse, there is one subtlety that I want to pull out, and there's two likelihoods that are not mentioned, but are probably inferred as a result of what it says in verse 1. So the first subtlety is this. The phrase, quote, has his father's wife is in the present tense. And what that means is that this is current And it is ongoing. It was not a one-time thing. It wasn't a short-term event. And it is probable that they are actually living together, stepmother and stepson, living as if they were married, even though they're not, and fulfilling such a sinful relationship openly within the culture and before the church. Now, the two likelihoods that are not specifically mentioned are this. There's no charge of adultery, that mean, which means that they weren't married, which creates another problem because sexual immorality is any kind of sex outside of marriage. And it's possible that the father may have divorced this woman because of the affair between his wife and his own son. That's That's conjecture, but it's a part of the subtlety that is potentially inferred but not verified in the Scripture itself. Thirdly, the second subtlety is there's no mention of discipline for the woman, which is usually the first to be mentioned, which means that this woman, this stepmother, was not a part of the believing community outside of the church that this man was now engaged in this sexual relationship with. So the man is engaged in a sexual relationship with his stepmother, and he is likely living with her, and she is not a part of the believing community, and the church had absolutely zero understanding of the need for discipline because there was absolutely no guilt 
over the sinful actions associated with this man and this woman. In their minds, there was no sin. Now, this result is very specifically the byproduct of human philosophy and human wisdom being adopted into the lives of people and ascending to a higher authority than the truth of God's Word. Do you think that the Apostle Paul could have spent 18 months in the city of Corinth founding the church converting its members and discipling them and not very clearly and specifically teaching them about biblical morality? Do you think Paul forgot that? Do you think perhaps he didn't think it was a big deal that it needed to be addressed? Ain't no way. They knew what had come to them through the apostle who was God's man in their lives and in their world. And as they examined the relationship between this man and this woman, they concluded there was no sin. There was no understanding of the need for discipline. And this, by the way, is not the first time that Paul has had to deal with the problem of sexual immorality within the church, specifically in the city of Corinth. Now, we're not going to look at this verse today, but if you'll scan down and look at verse 9, it says this, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the moral people. Now, Paul will explain what he meant by that. He's not talking about immoral people out there in the world. He's talking about immoral people within the church. Now, this verse 9 is widely regarded as the very, very first letter written to the church of Corinth, of which we do not possess a copy, which means that what we read as 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter to the, that he wrote to the church of Corinth. And our second Corinthians is the third letter that he wrote to the city of Corinth. But whatever it was that he wrote in that very, very first letter that we do not have a copy of dealt with the sin of sexual immorality. And here he is sometime later dealing with the exact same problem. And I would guess to a much greater degree than he originally dealt with because he's dealing with something that was not even allowable in the sinful Corinthian culture. More shocking to Paul than the sin itself was the church's tolerance of it. Well, how do we know that the church was tolerant of it? He tells us right here in the first part of verse 2. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. Now, as we've looked at already, that word arrogant means to be puffed up. And instead of mourning over the sin of sexual immorality between this woman and this man, they were proud of their spiritual discernment, which allowed the sin to continue unaddressed and unabated. Paul is basically saying, Your awareness over this sin in your church should have caused you to be mourning over that sin, but instead, you're puffed up about it. How else can we understand the church other than having a tolerant attitude towards this sin that was taking place openly and publicly in their midst? The people arrogantly allowed their own feelings and their own rationalizations 
to be more significant, more authoritative than God's Word and their life. And so they ignored the instruction that they have been given, and they have justified the flagrant sin in their midst. Does that seem unthinkable? How is that even possible? How can somebody who knows the truth of God's Word very easily set it aside and engage in such a kind of immorality that there isn't even the hint of guilt or the need for any kind of discipline to take place. How is that even possible? I'll tell you why. Anytime we replace the authority of God's Word with something else, it's a free-for-all. You do what you want. You do what makes you happy. You do what seems right to you. You don't have to listen to what some old dude wrote 2,000 years ago in a city you've never been to, to people you know nothing about. Come on, man. This is the modern world. But this isn't the modern world in the church of Corinth. This is the problem that has plagued humanity from the very beginning all the way back to when God called the nation of Israel to be unique people for Himself. They always found a way to justify and to rationalize their sin. Keep your truth away from me. You're infringing upon my right to live my life the way I desire. When this happens in the church, then the church ceases to be the church. Plain and simple. It can't get any more clear than that. When God's Word is no longer the standard, when it's no longer the source of authority, when it's no longer what brings to us life, then we're not a church. We're just a gathering of people who claim to have something in common that draws us together so that we can enjoy some part of the world that we live in. We get to define what that is. We get to decide there are no standards or boundaries. And we just live life to the fullest as our sinful desires will lead us. That's not the church. That's the world in the guise of the church leading people astray. So here in this church, you have a man engaging in sexual relations with his stepmother. It's common knowledge. The church and its leaders are sitting around and they are basically saying, what's the big deal? If, you, if we were to go back, I didn't cite the verse, it just came to me. If you were to go back and look in chapter 4, Paul tells them that he's going to come to them if the Lord wills, even though some of you don't think I am. And it indicates that this church thinks they're beyond the reach of the great apostle Paul. He can't do anything. He's not even here. So we're going to do what we want to do because we want to do it. So the first part in dealing with immorality is understanding the need. And the need is discipline. Now, secondly, understanding the method. 
We are to understand from this passage the method for this discipline that Paul wants to bring before the church. The second part of verse 2 says, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. The method of discipline is expulsion. Period. Now, the idea of expelling anyone from the church for any reason can sound harsh and unloving to some people. There are people within the church who would argue that the church should never expel anyone because if we were to do that, then we would be judging people and we are in the business of loving people, not judging people. Who are you to judge? Isn't that right? Isn't that what you hear? And so people will say, well, you know, who are we to say that's wrong and we want to make them mad and they're influential and and they might make a big stink and they might take all their kids and all their money and all their service and they might go away and we don't want that. So we'll just hope, we'll pray, that's what we'll do. We'll pray that the Lord will convict them and somehow just erase this and it's all going to just magically go away. Some people actually think that way in dealing with sexual immorality within the church. Judging sinful behavior and initiating disciplinary action is not inconsistent with love. Let me say that again. Judging sinful behavior and initiating disciplinary action is not inconsistent with love. In fact, the Bible teaches exactly the opposite. A lack of discipline is inconsistent with love. So to rephrase that, some people think that to discipline someone and expel them from the church constitutes a lack of love for that person. But the Bible teaches the opposite. In fact, it is your disciplining that person that proves that you really love them. Because your desire is to do what is best for them. That's what the Bible teaches. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. As the author puts together bits and pieces of several verses and says this. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, the church. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. What does that say? In love, God disciplines. Because God loves, God disciplines. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. Do you see that? The fact that God disciplines us for our sin proves that He loves us and it proves that we are legitimately His children. In the absence of disciplinary action is an indication of we don't really love you enough to admonish you to do what is right. 
And so we're just going to let you go on your way and hope for the best. We'll throw up a couple of prayers on your behalf. But far be it from me to infringe upon your right to live your life and judge you. That would not be love. That's not what the Bible says. So there's a very clear expectation of discipline as a result of love because of our desire for the best of the person that we are going to put discipline upon. Now, we looked briefly at the process of, dis- of discipline in our last gathering together, and this process was described by Jesus himself. So, first of all, if we are going to ascribe to the philosophy that discipline equals a lack of love, then we have to totally disregard everything that Jesus says here. Just, just blacken out this passage in your Bible and say, Jesus didn't really say that. Jesus didn't really mean that. That doesn't really apply to me today. That's what you have to do if we disregard what Jesus says about discipline. So the first part in discipline is the private confrontation. Matthew 18.15. I'm sorry, I erased part of this. Um, If your brother has sinned against you, go to your brother in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So we go to the person and say, you know, I just got to let you know that I was really offended by, you hurt my feelings by, and I just need to make you aware of that. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. That was not my intent. Okay, I forgive you restoration. That's the first part of discipline is the confrontation. The second part of that is the group confrontation. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be be confirmed. So you bring a couple of buddies. You say, hey, you know, this is what Joe did and this is what Joe said and it was really wrong and offended me. And they say, well, Joe, is that what you said? Is that what you did? And Joe says, yeah, that's what I said. That's what I did. And I know it was really wrong. And so I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. Would you forgive me? Great. You've won your brother back because of this, of this group confrontation. The third part, if they don't listen to the private or the group, is the corporate confrontation. And that's what we see in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, the group of two or three, tell it to the church, the entire assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So when Jesus gave this instruction, as was mentioned last time, primarily speaking to a Jewish audience, and when Jewish audience audience heard that you led him to beat you as a Gentile or a tax collector, it meant one thing. You kick him out of the synagogue. You expel him from the Jewish way of life. He can't come to worship. He can't offer sacrifices. No one's going to visit your business. No one's going to buy or sell your products. Your family may alienate you. You may be disowned. You may become homeless. It is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to a Jew. And this is what Jesus says is the process for church discipline. So the unrepentant response results in excommunication from Jewish worship and Jewish life. And in our application, as Jesus implies in verse 17, when he specifically mentions the church, a lack of response to discipline is expulsion. 
Now, what's very, very interesting about Paul's process of discipline here is that he has completely skipped step one and step two, and he has gone immediately to expulsion. You see that? Now, why would Paul do such a thing? Well, our verses will tell us the fourth reason, but there's three others that are basically the principles that we derive from everything that has already been said. So letter A, the church refused to address the sin. Rather than mourning over the immorality, they were arrogant about it. They weren't going to deal with the sin. They weren't going to call this man in. They weren't going to go to him. They weren't going to bring this before the church and say, church, we recommend expulsion from the church. And the church would say, we agree. They're going to say, we're not going to do that. Because even if we did, the church is going to say, what's the big deal? So there wasn't any private confrontation that was ever, ever going to take place. And so Paul skips that step. Let her be. The church, instead of mourning over the sin, was proud of it. Rather than being filled with the mourning that accompanies true repentance, they were proud and took a position of arrogance over their Christian liberty or over their philosophical wisdom, or over their spiritual insight, or over the special knowledge that they had. We don't really know the reasons why we can, we can infer that it was a result of the philosophical wisdom and, and worldly wisdom that had infiltrated the church. But they were actually proud of what was taking place, not bothered by it at all. So there weren't going to be two or three witnesses who were going to go to the man and say, this is wrong, you got to stop this, or else. And the church is going to ignore it anyway. So thirdly, Paul wants to expose the seriousness of sin. Incest within the church is embarrassing disgraceful and is an insult to the cross of Christ and to the holiness of God. Think about this. If a church is not going to address incest within one of its congregants, what are they going to address? Gossip? Striking someone in anger? Not a chance. It's live and let live. It's live as you please. It's do whatever you like. Because we're not your judge. We're not your jury. We're not going to do anything about it. Sin is serious. It's the reason Jesus went to the cross. The holiness of God is far greater than we can even begin to imagine, which is why He had to send His one and only Son as the atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty and to take upon Himself the consequence of our sin because God's holiness is a big deal. They needed to understand the seriousness of sin within their midst. When Isaiah gives his account of seeing the exalted Lord in the temple and the train of His robe filling the temple. And as He saw and as He heard the seraphim and the cherubim repeating over and over and over, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah was overwhelmed with such a repentant and such a remorseful attitude that he fell to his feet. In his position of repentance, and one of the cherubim came to him and burned his lips as he said, I repent of my sin and I repent of the sin of my people. Woe is me. You see, the holiness of God is paramount. And the church had taken the holiness of God and they've taken the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and they've laid it at the feet of an incestuous relationship. From Paul's Jewish heritage, he's calling upon what should be a normal consequence of being the people of God. And that is a desire for holiness and a natural repentance from any sin that God makes us aware of. But this position of mournful repentance is absent within the church. They have lost or redefined the holiness of God, which allows them to let this incestuous relationship take place as if there's nothing wrong with it. Now the final reason, is, which is where we spend the remaining parts of our time in this passage. Letter D, Paul has already judged the person. Because of the church's tolerance and inactivity, and because of the overwhelming obvious nature of the sin, Paul was within his apostolic right to skip one and two in this discipline process and move directly into expulsion because Paul has already rendered judgment on the person. Now, these next three verses, 3, 4, and 5, commentators universally agree that these are incredibly complicated in how we can understand with precision exactly what Paul means for us to understand. Now, let me rephrase this. I am not saying the translators have done a poor job translating the verse, because they've not. They've translated it exactly as it was written. But the thought that gets translated from one archaic language into a modern one can sometimes be difficult to track with precise clarity. For example, we can say... God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's pretty clear, right? We understand the meaning that Jesus had when He said that. Now, when we get into these verses, what is said is very clear, but understanding with precision what Paul intended to be understood is much more difficult to come by. That is because of the choice of words and the order that the words were put in. Now, some of you speak Spanish, right? And what I know about Spanish, which is not a lot, is that the, I I believe this is correct, the action comes before the verb, or excuse me, the action comes before the noun, right? That's opposite in English. You know, Joe went to the store, 
to the store went Joe, something like that. So in a lot of foreign languages, the order of the words is different and it can make understanding the word order somewhat challenging. So all of that to say, not knocking the translation, not saying it's not authoritative, just saying that the word choice and the order of the words makes it a little bit difficult to understand with precision exactly what Paul means. And I think you'll understand that as we break this down. Verse 3. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Now, this is not the most difficult of these three verses to understand, but this is what Paul is saying. Even though I am not there physically to observe and to address this problem, I am there spiritually as an apostle, as the church founder, and as your spiritual father figure. Now we might say, I am not with you, but my thoughts are with you. My prayers are with you. I rejoice with you, or I empathize with you. I am saddened with you. That's how we say, although I'm not there with you physically, I'm with you spiritually. This is what Paul is saying. He had all the information he needed to be able to render a decision, and he knew their lack of response required his action on the matter as if he was physically there with them. So Paul says, I am not there with you physically, but I am there with you in in spirit, but I am going to speak to you as if I am physically present. He restates this in verse 4 in a way that is somewhat difficult to understand with precision what he means. Here's what verse verse 4 says. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, he is restating something that he has just said, but he is also restating it parenthetically, which means it would have a parenthesis in it, within the sentence that you find this information. So let me let me start by going like this. All believers have been given the Spirit of God, as Paul has already told them in chapter 2. He says in verse 12 and 13, Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thought with spiritual words. So Paul has already told them that we have all been indwelt by the same Spirit. He's going to go on and tell them in the next chapter, in 6.17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one Spirit with him. So when they gather as a church, when we gather as a church, the Spirit of God is with them, just as the Spirit of God is with us. And since all believers are joined to God by the capital Spirit, Holy Spirit, Paul is present with them by that same Holy Spirit. So even though we are not in any other church today, except the one that we are occupying right now, in spirit, we are with all believers everywhere because we are joined to them in our union 
with the Holy Spirit. This is what it appears Paul is saying to them. So, what makes this verse here in four, verse 4 very, very powerful is how we understand the restatement of this parenthetical information. So the thought of verse 5 that we're going to look at in just a second is connected to verse 4, but it is somewhat interrupted by the parenthetical information. So here's how it goes. If you slightly rearrange the order of verse 4 to put the parenthetical information first, it would read like this and probably more accurately express what Paul wants them to understand. When you are assembled and I with you in spirit, that's the middle part put first. Now the first part says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, and the last part says, with the power of our Lord Jesus, which leads us into verse 5, I have decided to deliver, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul restates the fact that we are all connected together by the same Holy Spirit. And so what Paul says is this, because I am with you in spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, and I'm going to do that in spirit, even, I'm going to do that in spirit as if I were physically with you, because spiritually I am with you. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Because apart from that, it gets incredibly difficult to understand what Paul means when he says, I with you in spirit in the name of our Lord Jesus. And all of that gets jumbled together because part of this is considered to be parenthetical and it's a restatement of something that Paul has already said. So again, this does not make the translation wrong. But because of the word choice and the order of the words, it can obscure the precise meaning of what Paul probably wanted them to understand. Paul had rendered judgment upon this man in the name of Jesus, consistent with the character of Jesus, consistent with the will of Jesus, and in the power of Jesus, because he speaks to them as an apostle called by God, to deliver the inspired Word of God, the eternal truth of God, and it is in this role, it is with this responsibility, he has rendered judgment on this man, and Paul's judgment is expulsion. Paul is saying, I don't have to be physically with you to tell you, you've got to kick this guy out of your church because I am with you in spirit and I am speaking to you upon the authority of an apostle given the inspired words of God. You can't allow this to continue. I have rendered my decision. You have to kick this man out of your church. Now, as already mentioned, these three verses are very difficult to interpret 
so that we can understand with precision what Paul means. And so this is where some of this confusion continues. The word deliver. What does that word deliver mean? The word deliver means to enact a sentence. It is a pronouncement by Paul that is understood as a formal sentence of expulsion from the church. The word deliver is a judicial term. It means that Paul is saying, as an apostle, I am rendering a judicial verdict upon this situation. That man has got to be kicked out of the church. So Paul says, I am delivering him. I am rendering a judicial verdict upon him. He needs to be expelled from the church. So then what does it mean to deliver one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, that word destruction means exactly that. It means to destroy. It is a term that is often used in connection with divine judgment, which means physical suffering at the hand of God, the suffering which God allows as a part of our discipline. And sometimes this physical suffering can result in death. Now, the greatest example of this is who? It is Job. Job had not done anything wrong to bring about the discipline of God. It was only Satan's request to prove the genuineness of Job's commitment to God. And and God said, go ahead. I will allow you to torment him and to bring great hardship upon him. And you will see that he really does love me and he is committed to me. And so in that sense, God rendered a verdict of discipline to be brought about upon Job that brought about the destruction of his flesh. Job suffered tremendously, physically, emotionally, and spiritually as a result of this suffering at the hand of God. Sometimes this physical suffering or this discipline can result in death. Now, I didn't include this in your outline, so if you want to jot down 1 Corinthians 11, 30 to 32, Paul is going to talk very specifically about this when he says, for this reason, their abuse of the Lord's Supper, it wasn't this holy remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. It became a drunken party. It was a woo-hoo good time. It wasn't anything about the cross of Christ. And so he says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, which is a euphemism for our dead. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. By whom? Well, by God. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by who? By the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So this delivering over to destruction by Satan is the physical suffering that is going to be experienced. And the predominant thought is this. It is this suffering that is going to be the result of being cast out of the Christian community into the 
unrestrained world that Satan, excuse me, in the unrestrained world that Satan rules over without any of the care and without any of the community of, of, without any support of the Christian community. Now think back into the days of the book of Acts when all believers had all things in common and they sold their properties as anyone could so that they could meet the needs of the congregation. This is not that long past that experience. And so to enjoy the care and the support of the Christian community was a significant thing in the ancient world. Now the parallel to this is the excommunication that a Jew would face when they refused to repent of their sin. So when Jews were excommunicated, they were cut off from Jewish worship, from Jewish community. They were treated as if they were Gentiles, as if they were tax collectors, and this brought incredible hardship to them. We've talked about this before. Some would lose their home. Most would lose their friends. Some would lose their families. They would lose their place of business. They were basically out on the street fending for themselves as if they had no connection to the Jewish community. This was the worst punishment that a Jew could fathom. And it is likely from this perspective that Paul says, excommunicate this individual, cast him away from the love and the care of the Christian community so that through this act of discipline, he can come to his senses, repent from his sinful ways, and be restored to the Christian community. Now this delivering over to Satan is also used by Paul as recorded in the book of Timothy as Paul had to deal with pastors who were guilty of blasphemy. He says, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, delivered them over to Satan. For what reason? So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So the purpose of their being handed over to Satan's discipline was that they would repent of their blasphemy. So the result of the discipline is the purging of sin. It brings about a repentant heart and it brings about restoration between the offensive person and the Christian community. So by handing over this individual to Satan, Satan for the destruction of his flesh, the man's spirit here in the church of Corinth would potentially be saved. Read that verse 5 again. I'm going to scroll back up to that to find that. He says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus, which obviously is a reference to the end times eschatologically when Jesus returns, when there will be no more repentance from sin and he will consummate his kingdom. We can really only understand that one way. And I would disagree with some of the scholars who attempt to explain it differently. This man was not a true believer even though he in some way was connected to this community of believers in Corinth. Now, he may have made a profession of faith, but his lifestyle and his lack of repentance from such an egregious 
sin leads Paul to believe that his profession of faith was not genuine, and by expelling him from the church, he would undergo discipline that would have the potential result of this man being saved at the day of our Lord Jesus. Perhaps a man would see the error of his way by being cut off, and by perhaps he would repent and then truly give his life to Christ. In today's church, if you were excommunicated, you could very likely quietly drive away and show up in the parking lot of any number of other churches, and they would never know anything about this egregious sin that you had been expelled from a previous church as a result of. It would be anonymous, wouldn't it? I can tell you I've never, ever, ever been in a church where somebody has joined and we've gone back and done a reference check with every church they've ever attended. So tell me, Pastor Bob, we got, uh, I got to make up a couple names. We've got Tom and Sally here joining our church. Any reason that we shouldn't let them in? Never, ever, ever seen that done. We don't do it. Why? We'd rather have people in the seats. But in the ancient world, you didn't just get in your car and go drive 20 miles down the road and visit another church and make a new life for yourself. You just didn't do that. You were in that community, and that community knew what was taking place. And if you left that community to a neighboring community, although word might not travel very fast, it would travel and it would be known. This judgment of excommunication is a last-ditch effort to bring about repentance and restoration within the believer and God and the believer and the believing community. Now, as we sit here today, I would bet my paycheck that none of you are in an incestuous relationship, right? I would venture to say... (laughs) can't know for sure that none of you were in an adulterous relationship. But what I can say is this. We all share a common affinity for sin. And our sin, tolerated, running unabated in our life, is an offense to the cross of Christ and to the holiness of God. What is our response when God, through the work of His Spirit, convicts us of our sin, or the truth of His Word illuminates our sin, what do we do? Well, it's not that big of a deal. Nobody knows about it. It's not hurting anybody. God understands. Is that what we do? Are we arrogant, prideful, and our ability to entertain this sin unabated? Or are we mournful, driven to our knees, understanding that we have sinned against a holy and a righteous God who loved us so much that His one and only Son died in our place on the cross so that we could be made acceptable to this great God that we know. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we know that we are not the worst of the worst. There's no doubt about that. But we are certainly not clean and without fault. 
We thank you that the grace and the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover even the most egregious sin our minds could ever conjure up. And we thank you, Father, that that very grace, that very forgiveness has provided for our cleansing. So I pray, God, that even though we're not guilty of such an egregious sin, that we would come to terms with our struggle with allowing sin to rule or dominate or run rampant in our life. And we pray together that you would bring swift and immediate conviction to our hearts and that through your Spirit we would appropriate the power you've given us to have victory over our sin for your glory and for our good. Knowing that when when we sin... We hurt ourselves, and we in, we in turn despise the words of life that you have given to us. Father, thank you that your grace is inexhaustible. Help us to celebrate all that it is that you provided for us through our relationship with you. Would you reawaken us to the holy God that you are, as we consider our tolerance of sin in our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.